You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors, and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Quite frankly, here we start. Uh, uh, where's your interpreter? <laughs> for you or for me? <laughs> well, I, have, I have a good friend who, who hails from Scotland, so I think I might be able to really have no problem. I won't have well, any. You've had some practice. You've watched all, you watched the first five Bond movies. Yeah, it sounds really good. I, I actually love the way it sounds better than uh, uh, Queen's English. <laughs> I was thinking that for this podcast, it would be quite interesting to make your friendship the thread that runs through the podcast, because it's quite interesting to me, you know, two gentlemen born on either side of the East-West uh, Cold War rivalry, and both of you now live in Atlanta, I believe, both of you are now friends, so if you could just help our listeners take us on a journey, how did you first meet? Uh, that would be up to Keith. With regard yeah. to the overall uh, friendship thing, maybe I can chime in. We, we we have identical opinions about that, but but Keith tells it best what, how we met. He uh, <laughs> he, uh, I think initially uh, was present at one of my presentations, and somehow we exchanged phone numbers, and he invited me uh, for lunch. And now T- Keith, take take it away. No, actually, I, I heard uh, about this retired uh, former deep cover KGB guy who had a lot of money, and I thought I could get a free lunch out of Jack. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. It didn't work out that way. Um, no, no, I, I, I had called Jack uh, about making a presentation to my Rotary Club. Um, 
once upon a time, when Jack and I were very actively involved in the intelligence communities uh, from an operational standpoint, we maybe thought different than we do now. Um, I'm at a point in life now where I believe in giving back and service above self. Before, it was all about lying and manipulating to, to get things that I needed for the U.S. government, and, and I was really good at it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one hell of a, a liar and one hell of a manipulator, and, and that made me a good operator. But nowadays, I'm not that guy. So I called Jack and asked if he would come and speak to my Rotary Club. Best presentation in the history of my Rotary Club. Jack came up, talked about his life and his background and, and who he is now. But um, the, the, the fun part about the whole meeting with Jack is uh, when, when I called him, I, I wanted to meet him face to face before I brought him up to my Rotary Club to speak. And, and I suggested a place to meet that I thought would be a great place for guys with our background. It's a speakeasy in Atlanta, and it's located, we'll call it within a restaurant. But if you don't know it's there, there's no big sign on the door saying, speakeasy, here, follow this path. So I meet Jack for the first time face-to-face in the parking lot of, of, of the restaurant. And I say, hey, man, good to meet you. Just, uh, just do what I do. Just follow me. And so he does. We walk through a very crowded restaurant. And I walk into a walk-in cooler, and Jack walks in right behind me, and the door shuts behind Mr. Barsky. And that's when I will allow him to jump in and tell what his thoughts may have been when that door shut. <laughs> and when was this? What year? Three, three years, three years ago. ago. About three years ago. Um, so the, I people ask me this question all the time if I still have concerns about my well-being, so to speak. And, and the honest answer is there is some residual fear. Like, like for instance, I run around in the neighborhood here, and there's a, there's a piece of there's a stretch that's wooded. And when a car drives at me very slowly through that wooded stretch, I start running in zigzag. <laughs> Can't help it. Uh, but anyway, so that residual fear came came up because I didn't know Keith from a hole in the wall, other than you know having briefly spoken with him, and he was the enemy. You know he could be crazy. When that thing shut, I thought, oh my god, this is it. Here, here comes the ice pick in the back of the head. But but I'm a little guy and Jack's not, so I would have had to literally jump to catch him. <laughs> but but anyway. To, it, it only takes like five or ten seconds. Your eyes adjust, and then Jack can see me walking down a darkened hallway. A couple of right turns, and we're sitting at a very small bar, looking right. out through a two-way mirror at all the people in the restaurant. What a great place for two old spies to be. Let me chime in here about size. Uh, I think uh, smaller men make better spies because nobody notices them. And this is, this is I'm not making that up. Uh, my hand was at the KGB at the point where they decided to send me to the U.S., uh, confided that they had internal discussions as to whether I wasn't too tall. Uh, but then again, uh, my talent to get rid of almost uh, 100% of my German accent is, was so unique that they said, all right, he's going to the U.S. to have tall people. Uh, but but there was a consideration about height. How how tall are you, Jack? I'm six three. Six three. 
Even today, I'm still one of the tallest people uh, in any meeting. But 40 years ago, people were shorter. You know, I played center in college basketball in East Germany. (laughs) (laughs) And what height are you, Keith? I'm 5'7". 5'7". 73-ish. I think it would be really great just for people that aren't acquainted with you both just to get a better understanding of of who you both are. And I thought an interesting way to do this would be if Jack could describe who Keith is and Keith could describe who Jack is. Absolutely. Um, Jack is Keith, but he's just an East German version and taller. Um, We have... And better looking. We, uh, well, um, okay, I, I, I'll give you that because, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, I've got my glasses off. Nope, you're not better looking. Um, no, no um, Jack and I, as we got to know each other, we, we, we found out we, we share many of, of, of the same exact characteristics, how we were raised, what we believed in, who we became, why we did what we did, and how we got to where we're at today. Um, we look differently. We, we we sound a little bit differently. And yes, we, we work for the opposite sides uh, of, of, of the big old iron curtain. But we, we are one and the same individual. That's how I'm going to describe it. All right. Uh, and let me take that away. Uh, I agree with that 100%. We, we did what we did in the lying and the cheating and the deceiving um, because we knew we worked for a cause, not for self-aggrandizement, not for money, uh, not out of um, uh, hatred for one side or the other. We just knew that the cause that we uh, were engaged to support was the right thing. And, and, and uh, well, in this, in this case, I came over to Keith's side, 100%, right? Correct. Um, there, there was, there's one other distinct, there's one distinction though, in that uh, I switched identities. I, I wasn't an illegal, Keith was not. He had a cover, but uh, you know, when it comes to things like, uh, I, I was partially, one of my tasks was to be a talent spotter. Well, Keith was probably somebody who would take hints from a talent spotter and then try to develop the asset, right? Uh, so, um, you know, with regard to um, character traits, uh, mindset, and so forth, we are one and the same. But we were, we would have been, if we were, had been on the same side, we would have been uh, colleagues that played different roles because typically there's, when it comes to uh, particularly, you know, recruiting, running an asset, at least in the KGB there, they were always to me involved, the spotter, the recruiter, and then the handler, and they didn't know about one another. And they didn't even know what happened to the, to, to, to the potential talent. No, I was a spotter, no more, because as an illegal, if you go any further, you, you endanger your, your very being. Um, I use another word. I, I was what was commonly called the collector. I collected people and information. So you've got to get to the people to get the information. And so I was just commonly called a collector. But you did recruit assets, didn't you? Absolutely. That's a big part of the uh, the, the role. You know, n- nowadays, it's all about hacking and, and tracking software. Um, the, the, the 
the kind of work that Jack and I did, uh, you know, I don't know how much of it is really done anymore. Once upon a time, that was the place to be. The, the human collectors, the, the, the people that would uh, recruit assets and gather information, uh, that was where you wanted to be. Now it's hacking. Now it's tracking. It's software. It's technology. So just to pick up on something Jack mentioned there, would you say that you were both ideological, um, what are called ideological um, intelligence officers or spies, as opposed to just, well... I happened to be American and that was the intelligence service that was there or were used believers in the cause? Yes. I, believe, um, I, I hated the filthy communist. Come on, I grew up like that. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I grew up on this side of the Iron Curtain. My father was a military guy and I was a military guy. I got recruited from the Navy to, uh, to, to the intelligence community as a civilian. So I, I believed it 100%. Hook, line, and sinker. Those were the bad guys. Those were the... You know, the, the evil people that, that we grew up, the, the, the anti-everything that we believe in. Of course, I was ideological. I got news for you. We were evil. Uh, but here's my, my, my belief was, uh, um, I, I just, not hated, but, you know, I, I was just uh, uh, out to topple capitalism, which exploited people and suppressed people. So I, my belief was anti-American, but I couldn't find a lot of Americans when I got here that I actually disliked or hated. <laughs> but, but, but that was interesting in, in that the belief in, in, uh, in that what American was doing wrong in the world uh, took quite some time to, to get rid of. Uh, but, you know, Americans as people... Lovely crowd, really. (laughs) (laughs) And could you just tell our listeners just a little bit more about your own story? Where were you born and raised, and how did you end up in the world of intelligence? Well, it's uh, it's been a long journey. I was born in in a godforsaken corner of East Germany. Uh, That was four years after World War II. Uh, It was the 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 German zone that was occupied by the Russians became the German Democratic Republic. I grew up in the country, okay? Uh, the, the village I, uh, I was b- born into was, had about a thousand people. Uh, I went uh, for a little while to uh, a school that had multiple uh, grades in the same classroom. But I was a bright kid and that got me out of there. That got me to uh, a boarding school uh, and eventually to university. And I was a great student too. And uh, so I caught the eye of the KGB. How they found out about me, I don't know, but it is quite clear that uh, uh, at least occasionally East German government allowed them to look into the files of uh, people that they kept. And there was a file on everybody. And mine said, oh, good, good, good. Member of the communist party, uh, best student, uh, bright guy, a leader, blah, 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 blah. And so they uh, introduced themselves one day, and uh, it was a uh, year and a half of uh, mutual, like, uh, feeling each other out until one day in Berlin, I was introduced to one senior KGB guy there, and he bluntly and uh, 
brother uh, uh, directly asked me the question. So, are you going to be in or not? And he said, I wasn't prepared for that. And and he wanted and he wanted this decisive action. He wanted a response the next day, which I gave to him. And uh, I said, okay, I'm in. And so then I got. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the story because it it gets into you know I I, I can uh, go on and on why the decision was not that easy, uh, but I made it. I was trained for two years in Berlin, and then we discovered, to my surprise, that I had really good uh, language uh, capabilities. And they just figured, you know, instead of sending me to West Germany, where the Stasi already had a thousand agents all the way up to high levels in, in the government, ah, they needed some people desperately as I I illegals in the United States. So I got two more years of training in Moscow until they finally, until I was finally ready to sort of uh, impersonate an American. And that's what I did. I came to the U.S. in the fall of 1978, uh, you know, acquired all the documentations that, that you have to have to live and work in the U.S. and uh, worked for the KGB for 10 years. And then I quit. And I don't want to get into this is another part. I have a lot of stories within the story. Quit and became like a normal citizen. I forgot that I was ever a spy, but nine years after I quit, the, the FBI found me. And that was a surprise. And uh, so at that point, uh, I had not only lost my my um, dislike of America and the Americans, because I was making, you know, I, I built uh, uh, my own version of the American dream, I, but I also had lost uh, my ideolo ideological underpinning I was, I actually was on well on my way to become an anti-communist. So for me to cooperate with the FBI was, uh, it was a no brainer. And so four five years ago, I, uh, I, uh, was awarded citizenship of the United States. And so today I consider myself legally, intellectually, and emotionally an American. I just have had an unusual way. Uh, immigration path. It's been quite the journey, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, it, and it's still going on, trust me. Uh -huh. uh, there's still a lot of reasons to get up in the morning, in addition to the fact that I have a 10-year-old child. And one thing, just for our listeners, you know, when you say you were uh, born in East Germany, they'll immediately think of the Stasi. So just to clarify, the Stasi did not run an illegals program. It was only the KGB. No, they well, they ran a, the best illegals program ever in history. They, as I said, they had a thousand people in West Germany, including, uh, you know, just below the chancellor, actually. The, Billy Brandt. The, the major advisor uh, to, to Billy Brandt was uh, Günther Guillaume, who was an East German Stasi spy. So uh, they, uh, but, but they did not really... Uh, do a lot of active espionage out in other countries. Uh, they helped Cuba, for instance, quite a bit, and some some other you know uh, uh, Warsaw Pact states. But their focus was West Germany, and they did one heck of a job. And just before we go on to Keith, where were you during this time, Jack? Uh, so when you were an illegal, give us a sense of um, the various locations that you were. So I, I really, my, my, my uh, playground was New York City. 
specifically Queens, New York. I couldn't afford Manhattan. Uh, and um, other than that, I traveled around a little bit sometimes in the U.S. And uh, every two years, uh, going back to Moscow and uh, for some debriefing and, you know, uh, rest and relaxation. Uh, but, you know, pretty much New York. Um, you know, I lived in a neighborhood that... Uh, that, that w- was in process of becoming very internationalized. It had, a, it had an Irish-German background, but when I left seven years after I moved in there, it was like a, a crazy mix of all kinds of uh, different nationalities, all kinds of different restaurants. Yeah, uh, and quite affordable. And, and this is really interesting, getting a sense of the story before both of your lives intersect at this Rotary Club. So... Keith, help us understand how you ended up at that Rotary Club. Where were you born and raised, and how did you end up in the world of intelligence? Well, I, I, I am from the world, Andrew. That's the way I always uh, define it. When people ask me where I'm from, I just kind of look down and say, here, at the moment. My father was a career Navy man, and so I was born in a Navy hospital in Portsmouth, Virginia. And we moved six months after that, and we continued to do so very frequently throughout my childhood. Uh, I graduated from the American high school system after 10 full years, not uh, 12. And in 10 years, I went to 14 schools in multiple states and two countries. Uh, The longest I'd ever lived anywhere in my life was in the Philippine Islands. I I went in the Navy before I went to college, uh, right after I finished high school. In fact, I finished high school at 16. I had to wait until I was 17 to get my parents to give me permission. Both had to sign papers that allowed me to go in the Navy. So I was in the Navy uh, at 17, stayed in the Navy for just over four years, finished most of my four-year degree while I was on active duty, uh, serving for the squadron and on board two different ships. And uh, I I married young, um, had children young, stayed overseas in Italy, which was now my new home at that time. I'd, I'd been in Italy for a number of years with the Navy. Um, my, uh, my wife at the time, was she, she's Italian. So, uh, so I stayed overseas. And I got a uh, little knock, proverbial knock on my door one day from <laughs> someone who represented the American embassy. Uh, and then someone else who represented the organization that ultimately put me on on their payroll. Um, at the time, we called that organization NIS, the Naval Investigative Service. Nowadays, they're called NCIS. They've got a really cool, and very realistic TV show. Um, but it, 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 we'll say NCIS for, for modern purposes. So NCIS did not have any intelligence operations specialists assigned overseas. And the intelligence operation specialist role, the GS0132 series, is what we put everybody under, no matter who they, they get assigned to. And, and, and so I got uh, sent back to the States for some advanced training, um, got cross-trained by a number of federal law enforcement organizations, as well as the CIA. Um, and then this is where I differ from Jack a little bit. Um, I... I I look at things like terrorism and espionage as as crimes. And so part of me has a a mindset that you have to build a case. 
that you can eventually take before a court and you can't jeopardize your case when you're gathering information through the assets that you develop. But the other side of me doesn't give a rat's ass about the case. It's about the information, uh, expediency, get what you need to get quickly from whomever you need to get that information. Things that, that, that might help prevent a crime from happening. Um, so you know, I, I didn't do this for 20 years like Jack. I left that community to get into the private sector, uh, to get into politics, to get into business, to get into a bunch of other things that I wish to do in my life. I didn't grow up wanting to work in the intelligence community. It happened. For me, it, it, it was a job. It was an incredibly interesting job with incredibly talented people around me. Um, and, and, and I'm very proud of, of the, those years working with the old, uh, now NCIS organization. I went on to a career in the private intelligence world. And, 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 and that is a hell of a lot more interesting and a lot more profitable. You know, these days I don't work for ideology, brother. I work for money. And give, give every, well, some people would say that that's its own ideology, but, <laughs> um, and give us a sense of the types of things that you were up to, Keith. So you mentioned um, assets and collecting in Italy, like help us piece it all together. Absolutely. I, I, I did a lot of uh, very extensive liaison work with the Italian version of the CIA at the time, something called SISMI. They've changed that name since. But we did a lot of very good work directed against um, arms trafficking, terrorism. You know, the Red Brigade were uh, a big problem once upon a time. They had, they had kidnapped an American general, uh, General Dozier. Jack? Question, did, did you interfere in the Italian elections? Uh, as much <laughs> as we possibly could. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, You're not that old, are you? The forty-eight elections? Uh, well, no, not then. But and, and throughout throughout time, throughout time, we do our best to interfere in elections, like others try and interfere in our elections. It's silly. It's 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 juvenile that our politicians make a big deal about this. Hello, that's what intelligence officers do. We did it in Italy. They do it here. We do it all over the world. But um, some of the, the, the active things, and, and these are interesting uh, things. An individual named Yonsu Okudara, who's still at large, remember the Japanese Red Army, placed a car bomb in front of the USO Club in Naples, Italy. And it was two years to the date of the anniversary of when the U.S. Navy had bombed Libya and killed one of Muammar Gaddafi's children. So Yonsu Okudara, who was already wanted, by the way, uh, the year before, he had uh, uh, placed a mortar uh, device and bombed the uh, U.S. Embassy in, in June of 1987. So we were already looking for him. Um, we missed him that night. And Angela Santos, a U.S. Navy petty officer, a 21-year-old girl who had volunteered to work at the USO Club that night. It was nowhere near where, where her work uh, location was. It was miles and miles away. She was taking her own time just to be kind. Um, she got killed that night. And and people talk about a lot of other victims of, of bombs, but they, they seem to forget about Angela Santos. I haven't forgotten about her. Um, I got there to the to, to the bomb site very quickly. And, and again, fortunately, having been trained 
or cross-trained by federal law enforcement uh, individuals, I'm looking at, at absolute chaos and I'm thinking, you've got to protect the crime scene at this point. And so I'm screaming in Italian as loud as I can with my high-pitched voice, trying to get people away from what is now a crime scene. Um, we did some incredible work for 48 hours, by the way. Um, we got into the hotel room where Jones Sogodara had stayed. We got the records of, from, from the car rental company. We knew where he got the, 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 the nails, basically, that, that were used uh, around the device. We even know how he got out of Naples. And of course, the FBI shows up uh, you know, 24 hours later and gave us the classic, we're in charge. It's like, no, the hell you're not. But they wanted to be in charge. We had already done all the great work, uh, along with our Italian counterparts. But Yonso Kadada got away. He ended up in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon, and to this day, he is a wanted man. Both of you mentioned your training, um, and you spoke about the lying, the manipulating, the deceiving. I guess many of our listeners who have not been involved in the world that you were, their question is, they're going to wonder, how do you stop one from bleeding over into the other? How do you stop the professional lying and cheating and deceiving bleeding over into your personal life where you're lying and cheating and deceiving? Or or is it very difficult to make that distinction? The answer is you don't. It it sort of sticks with you. Now, the, the, the biggest difference uh, in my life is when, when I did lying and cheating uh, on behalf of the KGB, I hurt some people people that were close to me when I act the way I'm acting now. And I'm still a great manipulator. You, you just, it, it is, it becomes part of you, but I, I am uh, very careful not to do harm. And I, uh, over the years, uh, while I was in corporate America and, and now that I've been out of it and, and doing speeches and, and doing all kinds of different things, I think I have, uh, uh, collected a very good track record not to do harm with my capabilities. There was uh, one time uh, I was interviewed by uh, a very prominent German journalist. And she said at the end of the interview, she said to me, Jack, you're a very dangerous person. I said, I could be, but I'm not anymore. That's my story. I think, you know, Keith has been nodding. So there's one other thing that Jack and I have talked about, and, and we didn't practice it, uh, but we were speaking together once upon a time, and I don't know who said it first, but it became the, the, the really thing that united us. Um, w- once we got to a point where we fell in love with someone, and we understood how powerful love can be. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have great difficulty harming somebody at that point. And as long as you don't really love anything or anyone, you can be ideological. You can, you can be a jerk for a living. Um, you, you can lie. You can manipulate. You can deceive because you just don't show any emotion. You know, I, I, I fell in love and I can't be who I was anymore and, and and jack you know he he ended up leaving the kgb because he fell in love with his child right 
Right, and and you know, I, I want to echo that. That the one thing, and I, I've been working on on something like this, like like a presentation that that has to do with exactly that topic. And I come to the conclusion when it comes to love, uh, there is no more deception. There is no more perception management. There is no more manipulation. True love. I'm talking about true unconditional love. It's just raw self. And I have uh, arrived at that in in many respects. But you know, when I go out uh, and meet new people, I uh, I know how to speak their language. That's very important. And I do speak their language, even though that puts me out of who I am uh, at core. But that's not dangerous to them. No, but Andrew, don't don't take it that we got soft. I think we're harder than we ever were, but we just realize some of the emotional things that go into to being a man nowadays. Um, we, 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 we talked about how we were raised. We were very non-emotional. We had mothers who were kind of cold and, and standoffish. And, right. and it's amazing how our backgrounds paralleled uh, one another in different times and in different parts of the world as we got to where we were and what made us good uh, eventually could have, uh, you know, put a dagger in our own hearts if we didn't learn how to open up a little bit. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And just to get a better sense of your parallel lives developing, when were you both born? Are you both roughly the same age, or is there much of a difference between how old both of you are? I may be older. I was born in 49. 61. 61, okay. Yeah, it it, it doesn't really matter. But what is is really vitally important is that Jack and I grew up with, you know, an ideology. Um, Jack, uh, and and we often make the joke, you know, he grew up under communism. But, you know, how do you you know a communist? They read Marx and Lenin. How do you know an anti-communist? They understand Marx and Lenin. So, 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 so we, we, we understand each other um, beautifully. Uh, we, we sound different. We, we're, you know, I'm short, uh, he's tall. Um, but but if, if people listen to the substance of what we say and they, they realize that we did what we did for what we thought was the appropriate cause, but now we understand a little bit better. Uh, we understand each other. We understand a little bit more about the world. Um, espionage is a young man's game. You know, so- Socrates, I think it was, who said that the sign of a truly wise man is a man who accepts his own ignorance. When did you first think, I think I'm actually an American? 
that that was about five years into my assignment here. Uh, I was working at the time as a programmer for MetLife. And, uh, you know, in those days, the insurance companies were very paternalistic and it felt almost like I was at home and they really took care of you. And, and, and the work was very good. I, I loved programming and I, I worked with a whole bunch of uh, smart colleagues. That was after almost 10 years of either working uh, on substandard jobs, such as a bike messenger or operating as a lone wolf being trained for like almost six years by the KGB. All of a sudden I was again a member of a team and I did good stuff. And at uh, one, one point I was thinking because I knew my, according to what, what the KGB uh, communicated to me, the, the plan was to have me in the US no longer than 10 years. Apparently there was a bit of a shelf life attached to an illegal because they do what I did. Uh, or at least there's a great risk. That's why they like to send actually couples. Uh, anyway, uh, so and, and I, I, knew, I knew I would I would have to leave the U.S. and that was before my daughter Chelsea was born. But that thought just like started uh, popping up in my head. Said, I'm going to miss this place. And that when you ask him, that was the the seed. That was the beginning because I had become comfortable that was now my home away from home. And what what really nailed the deal for me to stay here was that I had this 18 month old girl who I, I uh, when, when they wanted me to go back, I just, I saw no way, there, there was no risk that was high enough to leave this child. And that must have been uncomfortable in a way to feel that seed and then for that seed to grow because that's something that you weren't meant to feel and that's something that could potentially be dangerous is that right no it's uh, let, let me tell you something about uh, uh, how i operated i i did not do a lot of deep thinking uh for a long time uh while i was because you start digging deep, you might find things you don't like. Uh, you might be afraid of the situation you're in. And there's a whole kind of, I was very, very superficial, smart as a whip, but superficial. Uh, and that carried forward even uh, into my career in, uh, after I uh, <clears throat> left the KGB. Uh, because there was also this dichotomy of, you know, being German, being American and all that. And, and once I was out of, out of the closet, I finally allowed myself to get inside of me. And I've done this now because of lots of interviews and, and the book that I wrote and, 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 uh, and, and starting yet another family, uh, I've gotten to know myself really well. And then it took a, uh, so, so when you asked a question about discomfort, I didn't let that in. I just did what I had to do. And it was, the, as, as I said, very superficial. Uh, and and that, that's that. And I'm not sure if Keith may have a similar uh, 
may have had a similar approach to, you have to do what you have to do, right? Very much so. Um, you, you, we, we all make sacrifices. Um, we make them in the name of a country, the name of our family, the name of whatever we happen to believe in. Um, so it's a series of sacrifices. Um, looking deep inside though, uh, which is something Jack and I, we didn't do when we were young men. Uh, we didn't want to look inside. Um, that's where you, you have to face your, your own truths. And, and when you're trying to manipulate everybody else to give you their truths, you don't want to know your own truths. Um, but once you do, life becomes much more enriching and much more fulfilling. Um, yes. We, we, we form bonds and friendships. Old adversaries uh, truly enjoy spending time together because we get to look at everybody and realize what BS they're spouting all over the world. How much of your training do you still carry around with each of you? Give us a better sense of the extent to which that still lives with you. Let me just start this. What I carry with me that was given to me as part of my training is my ability to speak and write English better than German. Um, All this other training... Uh, the best part of my training was um, spycraft, uh, operational training. I, you don't use that anymore. I'm not going to go around and and uh, check whether, whether somebody's following me. I'm I'm not doing secret writing. I'm not, I'm, I don't do any of that stuff. Uh, the what I carry with me is what I learned while I got into the business. The kind of uh, um, role I played, the kind of job I had as, the, as an illegal, you cannot train somebody for that. You learn this on the job. Uh, so with regard to, I can't, I really can't think of anything that, that was, see, the one thing that, that should have been done and it wasn't done, uh, there was very little cultural and psychological uh, training they never had, they never even made me take a psych test, nothing. Uh, and uh, so that I all, all acquired sort of on the fly by myself. So that's uh, that may be an unsatisfactory answer, but it is what it is. What I still carry with me is like uh, the moments. <laughs> Sometimes I walk around in the city and I think, oh, this is the good stop, uh, spot for a dead drop operation. You know, this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, many people, of course, know about the illegals from the the 2010 illegals program or more recently from watching, you know, the Americans. Um, So, I I mean, I guess another thing that in a way you carry around with you is is your name. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about that whole process, the name that you, you know, were born with and grew up with and, and the, you know, the name and the person that you are now? I find that really fascinating. Uh, well, I was given an unpronounceable uh, German name at birth, so I can't pronounce it, but I won't make you. Anyway, uh, and and I became Jack Barsky uh, based on what the KGB did in those days. Uh, frequently, they stole identities from uh, individuals who passed away at an early age. So there was this uh, 
this great gravestone in a cemetery in Maryland that uh, where one of uh, the diplomats who were actually KGB Russian Soviet diplomats uh, found that that was found by this fellow and he managed to acquire a death certificate for Jack Barsky pretending to be his father and then somehow he also got based on that he got a, a birth certificate you know United States has never been really really tight when it when it comes to security still not today now now the openness is in cyberspace more or less or in in in, uh, in uh, naive politicians who don't don't have a problem consorting with Chinese nationals <laughs> but anyway uh, so so I was given this birth certificate as a starting point and then I uh, acquired the documentation the two uh, important document pieces of documentation driver's license and social security card you could get a social security number in those days at an advanced age because there were two uh, groups of workers that were exempt from social security so you could walk into the social security office and say i need a card now i didn't have one because you know i worked on a farm uh, and when when eventually uh, the the FBI, that was actually the FBI director who made that decision, uh, decided that I would be allowed to stay in the country and eventually become a citizen. They also uh, agreed that I uh, I should uh, be able to keep this name because that name, I was so integrated in American society, uh, it would have been extremely disruptive for me to rename myself. And it would have also caused a lot of damage to my family. Uh, they did ask Jack Barsky's parents, who were still alive in those days, sort of for permission, even though there's no copyright to a name, but uh, they, you know, extended them that courtesy and they were nice enough to say, you can keep it. So, you know, I've, uh, I've been Jack Barsky much longer than Albrecht Dittrich, that's the German name. Have you, have you ever been to that grave in Maryland? No. No, I have not. Uh, but I, you know, a couple of journalists uh, visited it and sent me pictures. So no, it's an interesting grave because it's uh, uh, it 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 has uh, partially uh, inscription in Hebrew. Uh, the Jack Barsky's father was an Orthodox Jew, Elisha Lee Barsky. The saving grace for me that his wife, my quote unquote mother. Her maiden name was Schwartz. Now that is probably also Jewish, but it could be German. And so that's that's the story. And and Keith, how how much do you feel that you still carry your training around with you? The the only thing that I continually carry and I will always carry is I, I know that I don't have the ability to think nor feel for another person. I always ask people how they think or what they feel. Um, it's an assumption that people make that kind of angers me. And somebody says, hey, Keith, I know how you feel. It's like, no, you don't ask me and I'll tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a good intelligence operator's uh, trait. You can't think nor feel for another person. Um, we were taught very clearly to, to ask people a lot of questions so that we could find something that we could, again, manipulate. Um, ask them how they think, how they feel, and, and, and attack from that point. Now, I don't attack. 
I don't attack. I'm, I'm just genuinely curious about people, uh, Andrew. And that, and that is, is something that gets me out of bed every morning, excited like a little kid on Christmas morning. Uh, I really get to learn new things about people every day. Um, some people might call it nosy because I do like to ask questions, but I'm genuinely curious about what motivates people, just as you are asking me questions. Um, it's something I like to do. Yeah, we, we, we have that in common. I, I, I tell people these days, you know, I get to know what the, the real good part of my life at this point is that I get to know a lot of interesting people. I don't want to talk about me anymore. I was going to say that there's something else I've learned to embrace. And, and I get asked to speak before groups all the time, uh, college kids, uh, companies, uh, all kinds of uh, social organizations like Rotary and such. And I often start off by telling people to give me or ask them to give me 10 seconds and, and to look at me and put their phones down. And, and I let them know that I'm probably the greatest failure that they will ever meet. I have failed at more things than most people will ever attempt. And I embrace failure. I've learned from failure and I continue to learn from failure. So it became much easier to talk about myself and my own uh, poking holes in myself. Uh, as, as I got a little bit older, give it time, Andrew, when you, when you get to be our age, brother, you, you, you'll find it much easier to talk about yourself. It's, it's, uh, it's a matter of get, getting comfortable in your own skin. Uh, and that, that takes time. What is the basis of your friendship now? You, you spoke about golf. Are you, do you golf? Do you go for a few beers? Do you chat on the phone? All of the above? Or uh, give us a sense of... It's intellectual slash emotional because we, we understand each other. That's one thing uh, uh, that uh, this kind of a friendship has that you, that you don't have with people who haven't been in the field. They don't know what it's like. There's no instinctive knowledge of, aha, we don't have to, we don't have to mention some things that are understood. It's like, uh, what is that, the, the mind melt? And uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's an instinctive <laughs> understanding. We we could easily finish each other's sentences if if yeah. we so were so inclined. Um, Jack and I know how lonely the job could be as well. And and we're we're at a point where we don't want to be lonely, and and we we choose to share information and talk with each other, and we're old guys. We're harmless at this point. We're not worried about security clearances or operational programs. Um, we, we 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 talk about our past, but we also talk about our, about our present. And and believe it or not, we talk about our futures, our our kids, our grandkids, all the things that they're doing in the world. Uh, the sorry state of politics, the interesting mm -hmm. technological advances, uh, the toys that the, the spies get to play with now. God, they, they got great toys out there now, man. Woo. It would be fun. My final question is, if the three of us were in a bar and a fight kicked off, would it be helpful to be next to both of you? I have never been physical. I got some, I got some self-defense training uh, just in case I wound up uh, with the um, compromising materials in a place where I get attacked by, by criminals. Uh, but that was it. Uh, uh, in my entire life, I had, uh, and that includes, it starts from like when I was very young, uh, about three or four physical fights, all of which I won. And I'm not, I'm not physical at all. No, I'm, I'm not much of a fighter, but I was a military kid. So 
the bridge of my nose, it's not flat for genetic reasons. Another thing, it may surprise for people to hear that uh, this right hand, which is my strong hand, has never touched a weapon. No weapons training. BB gun, the strongest thing I had in my hand. Wow. Yeah, but, uh, again, most operational people don't really do weapons training and everything. That, that's movie stuff. And Jack and I often laugh about that. Um, again, but you've got a, a large part of the budget now that goes to paramilitary people. They're coming out of the military, working for the intelligence organizations. They're the shooters. Operational guys typically don't do that kind of stuff. And her, have there been any movies or TV shows that you guys have uh, discussed quite a lot, like the difference between fact and fiction? Outside maybe of John Le Carré, who is a little who who exaggerates a little bit, but but outside of that, there's really nothing, uh, no realistic description of the what I did in the world I lived in. Um, and that includes the Americans. It's a great, great entertainment, but totally unrealistic. Yeah, Andrew, there's nothing exciting about sitting on a rooftop doing surveillance when it's 110 degrees and, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and just, you know, watching people at a train station. Um, and it would not be an exciting movie or TV show to sit and to show somebody in front of a keyboard putting reports together for hours on end. But that's a lot yeah. of what the job entails. This, putting reports together. That's not exciting. The movies are brilliant they're fun they're great but they're not real nowhere near real no. the real world of operational espionage is exciting for 10 5 10 percent of the time maybe and the rest is administrative drudgery you want to and shoot yourself waiting. and just in my case it was waiting just waiting for something to happen yeah the International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi everybody, it's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.